You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We'll begin by reading our text, which comes from Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond all your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, and you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will have no end. To which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for, those, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for how your word teaches us here about Jesus. And we pray that as we ponder these things, as we contemplate them, Lord, that you would shape our thoughts, our hearts. Lord, that you would let these truths that we read here, let us really understand them. And we pray that they would truly affect the way that we live, our perspective on all things, the way that we feel. Lord, would you truly teach us this morning and let the truths of the gospel sink deep into our hearts and transform our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So just a couple weeks ago, August 21st, 2017, something very unique happened. There was a traffic jam in Wyoming. Now, that doesn't happen very often. And of course, the reason for the traffic jam was because there was a total solar eclipse that took place, uh, the first to happen in the United States in 38 years. And it was particularly special because it went all the way from one coast all the way across the, the country to the other coast. And as a result, it was viewed by more Americans than it ever viewed in any other eclipse in history. Now, what happens during a solar eclipse is that the moon gets in between the earth and the sun. The moon passes between the earth and the sun in just the right place, and the moon completely blocks out the view of the sun. And that's interesting because the sun is 400 times bigger than the moon. The sun is 400 times bigger than the moon. The the moon is really just this relatively small rock that's orbiting the earth, and yet the sun is this massive, burning, flaming, glorious, radiant body of light around which we orbit. The sun puts off so much light that you can't even look at it without burning out your eyes. It puts off so much heat that it burns your skin and it melts things. It causes paint to fade, and yet the moon is just a rock that's spinning around the earth, and and even though it's 400 times smaller than the sun, if it gets in just the right position, it has the ability to completely block out our view of the sun. The sun, of course, during an eclipse is still there in all of its radiance and all of its power and all of its burning heat, but you can't see it and you, you don't feel it 
Because something has come in between you and it. And I think that's a, it's an interesting picture. It's a very good picture of what happens in our lives a lot of times in regard to the gospel, in regard to God, in regard to Jesus. See, God is good and glorious and great. And all that God has done for us in Jesus, it's so big. The implications of it for our lives and for all of eternity are so huge. And yet sometimes relatively small things can get in the way of us seeing it or feeling it. Relatively small things can eclipse, you might say, at least from our perspective, they eclipse the radiance and the beauty of the gospel. And we can get to the point where these small things in our lives are all that we see. They obscure our vision to the point where we no longer see God. We no longer see the gospel. We no longer see Jesus in all of his glory and his love and his grace and, and the hope that we have in him. You know, if you were to look at your life there are probably a lot of things that you could look at and you say, well, you know, in the big picture, this really is a relatively small thing, right? But, but maybe it's a conflict you're having. Maybe it's a financial situation you're facing. Maybe it's something going on at work or in your family. Maybe, maybe something's going on in your life, but, and yet it's all-consuming. It's consuming all of your thoughts, all of your energy. You can't think about anything else. You can't see beyond that thing. It has absolutely eclipsed everything else in your life. It's what you might call a total eclipse of the heart. At least that's what Bonnie Tyler called it, and that's the title of today's message. The letter of the Hebrews was written to people who were in this exact situation, actually. They were facing difficulties in their lives. They were facing hardships. And they had allowed those things to eclipse their view of Jesus and who he was. The writer of this letter is saying to them, and by the way, to us as well, what you need to do is you need to get things in proper perspective. You need to fix your eyes upon Jesus. You need to fix your eyes on who he is and what he has done for you because it's only in light of that that you will be able to see everything else in your life properly. You know, Bonnie Tyler, again, she experienced what she described as a total eclipse of the heart. I'll tell you how she put it back in 1983. She said, once upon a time, I was falling in love, but now I'm only falling apart. Nothing I can do, it's a total eclipse of the heart. She went on to say, once upon a time there was light in my life, but now it's only dark, there's nothing I can do, it's a total eclipse of the heart. Well, the writer to the Hebrews, if he was there in 1983, he would have said, actually, Bonnie Tyler, there is something you can do. It's not that there's nothing you can do. There is something you can do. In the midst of whatever's going on in your life, you can fix your eyes upon Jesus. You can look at him and you can see everything else in your life in light of who he is and what he's done and what that means for you both now and for eternity. And that perspective will change everything. You see, because when you really understand that, it will fill your heart, it will fill your life with light and hope, and it will be an anchor for your soul, no matter what comes your way. You know, the same is true for me and for you. I imagine, is your career an important part of your life? Well, of course it is. Is, is, is family important to you? Are relationships important to you? Finances, your goals and aspirations, entertainment and recreation. Of course, all of these things are important in our lives. We have some interest in these things. But here's the deal. We have to keep these things in their right orbit. 
We have to keep these things in the right orbit. We need to make sure that our lives don't revolve around these things, but that our lives revolve around the Son, Jesus Christ, and that these other things in our lives never eclipse Him. Here in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer is writing to people who are very much like us, people who had let many things in their lives eclipse their view of Jesus. And the goal in this letter is to help us get our eyes back on Jesus, to fix our eyes upon him and see him in all of his radiant glory. And as we go through this letter, what we're going to see over and over is that the writer's passion is to show us that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. In every chapter, in every section, he's going to be talking about this. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater than anything and everything and anyone. He is supreme. Here in this section today that we look at, the writer is showing us that Jesus, first of all, is greater than the angels. Now, I don't really think there are very many of you who came in here today with this burning question saying, I wonder if Jesus is better than the angels. I sure hope that the pastor is going to talk about that today because I've been wondering, I've been hoping that somebody could help me settle that issue. Now, but let me say this. In the first century, when this was written, that was just a pretty big deal, actually. But I also want you to see this. With this backdrop of talking about angels and how Jesus is greater than angels, we are going to see today that this is actually very important. What this section says is very important as regards who Jesus is and understanding who he is. And so amongst the Jewish people of this time, though, it's important to realize there was a lot of interest around the topic of angels. And the reason for their fixation on angels was partly because of Jewish tradition. So Jewish tradition said that the law of Moses was delivered to the people by the hands of angels. And of course, the Jewish people, they so prized and so treasured the law of Moses that this idea that the law of Moses was delivered by angels made them intrigued and they wanted to know more about angels. So they became very interested in angels. Furthermore, there's all these stories in the Old Testament about times when God spoke to people, when God sent angels to people as messengers. And so because of these things, uh, these, these people weren't saying that they diminished the view of God, but what they were doing was they were elevating the role and the importance of angels to a place that was sometimes very unhealthy. We know that at this time, angel worship was beginning to be a thing amongst Jewish people. Paul even mentions this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 18. He talks about the practice of worshiping angels, and he tells the Colossians, he says, don't go there, don't, don't even think about that. Now, for some of these people, uh, their interest in angels... And that's really what we get to today. Their interest in angels had eclipsed their interest in Jesus, their view of Jesus. And in fact, one of the ideas that was even going around at this time was that Jesus was actually an angel. And just as God had used angels throughout the Old Testament to deliver messages to people, they said, well, now Jesus had come, and he's just another angel sent by God to deliver a message. And they would say, well, that explains his resurrection. He was able to do that because he was an angel. And they said, well, therefore, if he was an angel, well, what that means is we should honor him and we should listen to what he had to say because he was a messenger from God. By the way, that's what the word angel means. It literally just means messenger. They say, well, Jesus, if he was an angel, then he was a messenger from God, and we should listen to what he said because he delivered a message from God to us. Now, I want you to see that in a way, that's actually very similar to the way that a lot of people today also talk about Jesus. 
You know, a lot of people, I think the common consensus, if you were to do polls and ask people about Jesus, the common consensus is this. Well, you know, Jesus should be honored. He should be respected. We should listen to what he had to say. It was probably pretty important. But let's not go so far as to say that he was anything more than a messenger. Let's not go so far as to say that he was the Savior who died in our place to take our judgment that we deserved and to make us right with God. And let's certainly not go so far as to say that he was God. So in the same way as it was then, their deal was angels. But in our day, it's just this idea that Jesus should be revered, he should be honored, he should be looked at as a good teacher who brought an important message. But that's where we draw the line. We don't want to go any further than that. You know, even today, there, there are many people who are interested in, also they're interested in and fixated upon angels, just as they were at that time. You know, there's several people I know personally uh, who are fixated on angels, right? They have like angel art in their house. They're always sending angels, whatever that means. They're sending angels to people who are in need or struggling. And they're really interested in angels, but not at all interested in Jesus. So, so this kind of thing still exists today. And so what this section has to say is actually very relevant to us and where we're at today. What the writer is saying here essentially is this. Hey, angels are great. Angels are awesome and and cool and stuff. But here's the thing you need to know. Jesus is much greater. Jesus is much greater than any angelic being. And your focus needs to not be on angels or really anything else for that matter. Your focus needs to be on Jesus. Here in this section that we just read, there are seven quotations from the Old Testament. And the writer uses these seven quotations to show us two things about Jesus. The first one is this, that even before Jesus was born in that manger in in Bethlehem, the Bible already talked about him for thousands of years. The other thing the author wants us to see is this, that uh, the scriptures tell us who Jesus is and they tell us that he is greater than the angels. So first of all, let's talk about this. What are angels? Let's, let's sort this out first. What can we know from the Bible about angels? Well, I'll just give you a few things. First of all, the word angel, both in, in both of the ancient biblical languages, so ancient Hebrew, ancient Greek, the word for angel literally is just the word messenger. So that, that's what an angel is, a messenger. Secondly, we're told here in verse 14, there at the end of chapter 1, that angels are ministering spirits. So we read that in verse 14. Angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation. Now, that's you if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus and what he did for you. But what this tells us is that angels are spiritual beings and, beings, and yet we see throughout the Bible that there are times when angels take on human appearance. Uh, later on in the, here in the book of Hebrews in chapter 13 verse 2, the writer tells us that we should not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because by doing that, some people have actually entertained angels unaware. It's a crazy thought actually, but, but as far as what angels do... The Bible tells us they basically do two things. We, we see angels doing two things in the Bible. Number one, they worship God. And number two, they serve God and do God's bidding. So angels generally in the Bible are not visible to us. They can be seen at times, take on human form at times, but generally they're not visible to us unless there's some kind of special revelation. So there are several places in the Bible where we read about how angels were present and yet people didn't see them. For example, there's a place where it talks about Elijah, the servant of the Lord, and he was being chased by this army of this foreign king 
who was an enemy of Israel and wanted to attack uh, Elijah and kill him. And Elijah's servant was with him, and Elijah's servant is scared because this army is coming to get them. And so Elijah says, you don't need to be scared. God's with us. And he prays, and he asks God to open the eyes of his servant so that his servant can see the angels surrounding them. And it says that God did that. God opened his eyes, and he saw this multitude of angels around them, surrounding them to protect them and to serve them. So we also know that angels are created beings. So unlike God, angels have not existed forever. They are created beings. We know that angels were created also before the creation of the world. In the book of Job, God tells us that angels watched as God created the world and that they sang and, and shouted for joy as they watched the creation. Furthermore, the Bible tells us that angels don't reproduce, and so that would mean that there's a set number of angels, and we don't know how many that is, but whenever the Bible talks about them, it uses these superlative words that, you know, it says the host of heaven. It uses these giant terms to say that they're as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. So it also seems that angels have a moral will, a moral will, because we're told that some angels are holy, and there are other angels who have rebelled against God and become fallen angels who, who lie and sin and who don't serve God. And there is one prominent fallen angel. His name was originally Lucifer. Lucifer, by the way, is a beautiful name. It's, uh, it's interesting we don't name our kids that because what it means is bringer of light. But yet it's kind of gotten a tainted uh, reputation uh, being associated with who it is. We now refer to him as Satan, which means adversary. So Lucifer, we're told, uh, especially in Isaiah chapter 14, we're told is that Lucifer was this prominent angel in heaven. And that, by the way, that, that's another thing we know about angels. There are different classes of angels, different kinds of angels. We've got cherubim and seraphim and living creatures. We also read that there are different ranks of angels. Some angels are referred to as archangels, meaning they have a higher rank. And so in Isaiah chapter 14, we read that Lucifer was this prominent high-ranking angel, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He wasn't satisfied that, with that because he wanted to be God. He wanted to dethrone God and take God's place. He wanted to exalt himself. And as a result, he was cast down out of heaven. And, and Lucifer, he led this rebellion. In Revelation chapter 12, we're told that in that rebellion, one-third of the angels of heaven joined him in that rebellion. And these fallen angels are what we know as demons or unclean spirits. And by the way, just a side note, if Jesus is greater than angels, as we read here in this section, well, then that also means that Jesus is greater than any fallen angel. And there's no reason why we should ever fear fallen angels in this sense. We shouldn't dabble in it, but we have no reason to fear it because Jesus is greater. But it's also an interesting thought to think about this, really, that the first sin, even before the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, the very first sin that we know of is the sin of Lucifer. And what was Lucifer's sin? His sin was that rather than honoring God, rather than submitting to God, he sought to take the place of God. He wanted to be in charge. He wanted to sit on the throne. And if you think about that, there, there are so, so much of where we get off track is in the same kind of area. Rather than submitting ourselves to God, we say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the Lord of my own life. I want to sit on the throne. I want to call the shots for myself. And the result of that, rather than being liberating, rather than being empowering, it's actually just the opposite. Just as it was for Lucifer, it leads to our own demise. It leads to our own ruin. See, the best thing we can do 
for ourselves, actually, is to let God be God and to give him the place of lordship in our lives. It's very interesting what it says in verse 9 here. It says, speaking of Jesus, it says, You loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above all your companions. You see, in other words, Jesus was full of joy and happiness and gladness. He was the happiest person on the block. And you know why? It tells us why. Because he loved righteousness and he hated wickedness. And that, that's a really important point, actually, to see. And here's the point. It's this, that sin is not bad because it's forbidden. You understand that, right? Sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. And having that perspective is really important for how we see God, especially when God tells us, don't do this, right? It's, here's another one, that holiness leads to happiness. The reason why God tells us, be holy as I am holy, is because he loves us and cares about us and wants us to be ultimately and truly happy. I mean, really think about it. Think about sin and all that it causes. Sin leads to what? Nothing good. It leads to pain, suffering, heartache, ultimately to death. Nothing good. It's as if God is saying to us, here's a glass of water and here's a glass of antifreeze. Don't drink the antifreeze. And we're saying, well, I don't know. Are you telling me to do that because you don't want me to have a good time? I think you're just telling me not to do that because you don't want me to have fun. I'm going to do it anyway. So we drink the glass of antifreeze. It makes us sick, but yet we feel great because we feel like I'm in control of my life. I made myself totally sick, but at least I didn't submit to what someone else was telling me to do. Well, congratulations, you did it. You drank the antifreeze, and guess where that's going to get you? Unnecessary hardship, unnecessary pain, nothing good. See, the reason why God wants you to be holy as he is holy is because he is perfectly happy and content and he wants you to be happy. He wants you to have what is best for you ultimately. So now that we have that background of, of what angels are and what the Bible says about angels, let's take a look at what the writer has to say about who Jesus is and how he's superior to the angels. The first thing we read in verses 4 through 6 is that Jesus is the firstborn son of God. Now, let me just say this and give you some understanding of what's going on here in the big picture of this section. Here the writer is using seven, seven different quotations from all over the Old Testament. Some are from Psalms, some are from Samuel, some are from other places. He's using seven different verses from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Bible. Uh, we call it the Old Testament. And that's interesting because, you know, there are other books in the New Testament, like, for example, the Gospels. And the approach that they take to telling us who Jesus is is by looking at what Jesus did and what Jesus said, particularly what he said about himself, and then saying, okay, are those things true or not? And by the way, that's a very good approach for us to take because Jesus made some pretty radical claims about himself. For example, a really interesting one in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he kind of just casually says, yeah, I, was, I, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, now think about this. That's the event we were just talking about a couple seconds ago. Jesus is having a conversation. He just kind of casually inserts that. Yeah, uh, I was there. 
I watched Satan as he fell from heaven. Man, it was intense. You know, that's kind of like the best story you can have for a cocktail party. Like if you're at a party and there's like a guy over here and he's talking about this time when he saw somebody famous, right? And then Jesus steps up and he says, oh yeah, hey, hey, that's an interesting story. Kind of reminds me of this time when I saw Satan fall from heaven. Well, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't have been there. It was kind of before your time because it was before I created the earth right? So Jesus kind of has like the ultimate Trump story where he says, uh, yeah, you know, it's just one of those things you never forget, just seeing Satan fall from heaven. Man, it was intense. So Jesus says, I was there when Satan fell from heaven before the creation of the earth. Jesus also claims, by the way, that he has the power to forgive sins. He claims that he's the savior of the world and that if people believe in him, they will be saved. He claimed that he was God and that is why the authorities wanted him killed. So these things that Jesus said, we have to look at them and say, wow, those are some pretty radical claims that he made. And here's the thing, either they're true or they're not. There's really only two options, right? Either the things he said are true or they're fallacies. And then you've really got two options. If the things that Jesus said are not actually true, well, then there's really only two options. Either he knew that they weren't true, in which case he was lying and knowingly misleading people, or the other option is that he thought they were true, they just weren't, in which case he's delusional and he's out of touch with reality. Either way, you shouldn't follow someone who's either a liar or who's delusional, right? The other option is that Jesus, what he said was true, and in that case, he's not a liar and he's not a lunatic, but he's actually who he said he was. He's the Lord, he is God, and, and therefore we owe him all of our lives and all of our worship and everything that we are. But the one thing that Jesus cannot be, absolutely cannot be, is, is just a good teacher. See, that's the popular thing to say in our day is that, well, you know, Jesus, we don't want to go so far with this. We just say that he was a good teacher. All that other stuff, I don't know, you know. I mean, I'm not sure that stuff was true. He, he was just another religious figure along with a lot of other religious figures. He was just another great thinker, just like a lot of other great thinkers. But here's the thing. Again, if he was a liar, if he was knowingly misleading people, well, then he wasn't a good teacher, was he? And on the other hand, if he was delusional, if he was out of touch with reality, if he was living in a fantasy world, well, then he certainly wasn't a good teacher. He was telling you his delusion, like somebody who thinks that they're a toaster or somebody who thinks that they're, you know, the president of the United States, but they're actually not. You wouldn't follow that kind of person. You wouldn't say that person's a good teacher. But if Jesus, if what he said about himself was true, and it is, then he's not simply a good teacher either. He's not just simply another great thinker. He is, in fact, the Lord, and we owe him our lives and all that we are. So here the writer to the Hebrews, though, he doesn't look at what Jesus said about himself. Rather, he goes back and he takes a different approach. He says, well, let's look at what the Old Testament scriptures said about who the Messiah would be and how that relates to angels. Now, there are two really important things to notice about these Old Testament quotations that are found in this section. The first thing to notice about them is this. As the writer quotes these Old Testament verses, he attributes the words of these verses to God. So look at verse 5. He says, or to which of the angels did who ever say? God. Did God ever say? In other words, he attributes these words where he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He says, these are the words that God spoke. But that quotation, by the way, comes from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And who wrote that? Well, David, King David wrote 
Psalm 2, verse 7, but yet here he's saying that God said these words. And that what he's doing here is telling us something that's very important, and that's this. What he's telling us is that when King David wrote these words, that it was actually God speaking through him. You see, the book of Hebrews is one of the clearest places in the entire Bible where the Bible talks about itself and tells us that what the Bible is, is God speaking to us. Secondly, as he's quoting these Old Testament verses, the the second thing to notice here is this, that the author is attributing all of these verses. He's saying, these verses are talking about Jesus. And what that means for me and you is this. You will never really understand the Old Testament until you understand that all of it is ultimately about Jesus and points to Jesus. Until you understand that, the Old Testament will be a mystery to you. What we have here in this section, actually throughout the book of Hebrews, is really an in-depth theology. We call it a Christology, which is the theology of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Now, sometimes I hear people say things like, Oh, you know, I'm not, I'm not into theology. Sometimes even Christians will say, I'm just into Jesus. I'm not into theology. I'm not into all that stuff, right? Well, let me tell you this. Uh, whether you admit it or not, you are into theology. You can't avoid theology. Whether you realize it or not, all of us are engaged in theology. And not just here in this room. Everybody, your neighbors, people who don't come to church, everybody's involved in theological thoughts and discussion because the word theology means thoughts about God. It means ideas about God or talk about God or the study of the knowledge of God. Every one of you has thoughts about God. Every one of you has ideas and concepts about who God is. And guess what? That makes you a theologian. I'm looking out right now on a room full of theologians. Now, whether you're a good theologian, that's a different question. I I don't know yet, right? But I do know that whether you're a good one or not, you are a theologian. You could put it this way. Even an atheist is a theologian. Because an atheist has ideas and concepts about God. So even if you say, oh, I'm not really into theology, it's not my thing, that itself is a theological construct, you see? You're doing doing theology because what you're saying is that in your opinion, theology and who God is is not very important. That is a theological statement. So every person is engaged in theology. Everyone has a form of theology. The question is, Is your theology good theology? And secondly, where do you get your theology from? And the best place we can go if we want to learn about God, if we want to learn who he is and what he's about, is to go to God's direct revelation of himself to us, which is here in the scriptures. So we go here and we say, who is Jesus? Okay, here's what the Bible says. Number one, he is the firstborn son of God. Now, this is a very interesting phrase. It's also a very easily misunderstood phrase. Let me explain it to you. In verse 4, it is talking about the title which Jesus received. It says in verse 4 that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God on high after completing the redemption for us, for our sins. He sat down at the right hand of God, and then it says that he was given a title which was greater than the title which has been ever given to anyone or anything, even to the angels. And here's Jesus' title, firstborn son of God. Now, the reason why this phrase is confusing to a lot of people is because we tend to think of the word firstborn in regard to chronology or birth order, right? The firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn. But I want you to understand this. In this sense, the word firstborn isn't referring to birth order 
what it's referring to is rank and status. You see, in all ancient cultures, they had something called the law of primogeniture, which means the law of the firstborn. And what that law meant was this, that legally, in the eyes of the law, a firstborn son is equal to the father. A firstborn son is equal to the father, legally. That, that was the law. So this is what it's referring to when it's saying that Jesus was the firstborn son of God. Now, a lot of people get confused about this, again, because we don't have anything like this in our culture, in our day and age. These people, though, they would have understood it. It was a way of saying something very important and very significant that we believe as Christians, and that's this, that Jesus was separate from the father and yet equal to the father. One of the reasons why the writer... Uh, points this out is because sometimes in the Old Testament, angels are called the sons of God. And, and that's interesting because though, remember, that's never in an individual sense where he looks at one and says, you are my son. We only see that with Jesus. So it's only with Jesus that God looks at one and says, you are my son. And, and by saying that Jesus is the firstborn son of God, it emphasizes that he is both superior to the angels and that he is equal to the father. In fact, Jewish rabbis used to sometimes refer to God by the title of firstborn of all the world. They would re refer to God as firstborn of all the world. That wasn't to say that God was created, what it meant to them, firstborn meant not origin, but status and rank. So it meant that God was supreme over all the world, that there was none higher than him. And that's the sense in which it's used and applied to Jesus here as well. It's the absolute highest rank possible. He is equal to the Father. Secondly, we see in, in verses 6 and 7 that the angels worship Jesus. So Jesus is greater than the angels, and that's proven by the fact that angels worship Jesus. Jesus is superior and they worship him. He is not one of them. He is the object of their worship. In Revelation chapter 5, we actually get a glimpse into heaven in the throne room of God. And this is exactly what we see. We see the angels around the throne and they're worshiping. And they're not just worshiping God in general. They're worshiping Jesus specifically. Here's what it says in Revelation chapter 5. John, the, the writer, he says, I looked and I heard around the throne the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain, that's Jesus, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Now let me say this. If angels worship Jesus, then how much more should we worship Jesus? How much more should we be motivated to worship Jesus? Because here's the thing. If angels worship Jesus and yet we have even more reason to worship him than they did. See, Jesus never gave his life for them, but he gave his life for us. They don't experience grace and mercy in the way that we experience God's grace and mercy. And if they worship him, how much more reason do we have to worship him? In fact, the apostle Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says that when it comes to salvation, when it comes to God's grace that he has shown us, and the gospel and how he saved us in Jesus, Peter tells us these are things which the angels long to look into. In other words, angels are intrigued by this idea. They're blown away by this idea that here we are fallen, rebellious creatures and yet God has placed his love on us and shown us grace and mercy and given us salvation in Jesus. And the angels look at that and they say, that's incredible. I wonder what it's like to be on the receiving end 
of that. And the point is this, if, if angels are blown away by God's grace, how much more should you be blown away by God's grace, you, a person who has been a recipient of it? If the angels have a passion for worshiping and serving God, then how much more should we who have been on the receiving end of his love and grace and salvation? Thirdly, uh, God calls Jesus God and Lord. That's what we see in, uh, starting in verse 8 and 9. Yes, starting in verse 8 and 9 and all the way down to verse 12, God is calling Jesus God and Lord. So God treats the angels, we see there in verse 7, as servants, but the Son, he speaks to him differently. To the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In other words, God is calling Jesus God. If God calls Jesus God, I think that kind of settles it for me, that Jesus is, in fact, God. See, many people in the world, like I've been saying, they're okay with Jesus as long as they can put him in this category of just another religious figure who helped us learn something about the divine. But here's what the Bible says. No, you can't do that. You, you can't get away with that. Jesus is more than that. He's God. And if he is God, then you can't just like him. You have to give him your life. You see, this isn't just something, and this is what the author's showing us, the idea that Jesus is God, it's not just something that Jesus' followers made up or came up with a couple of years after Jesus died. This is something that was talked about before Jesus was even born. It was prophesied. It was talked about in the Old Testament. In fact, it's all over the Old Testament. You see, people love the fact that Jesus spoke about peace and justice and compassion, and he absolutely did speak about those things. But the crux of what the Bible has to say about who Jesus is, is that he is God. And if that's true, if he is God, that means we can't just like him. We can't just be fond of him. We can't just dabble in his teachings. If that's true, we can't just put him on the shelf with other religious figures throughout history. If it's true, and the, and the Bible says that it is, then you can't remain indifferent about him. If it's true, then it means that you owe him your worship, your heart, in fact, your very life. Verse 10, God calls Jesus Lord. It says that then in verse 10 and through verse 12 that Jesus is the creator, that Jesus is self-existent, that he's eternal, and that Jesus is immutable. Immutable meaning that he never changes, right? A mutation is a change. So immutability means that he is never changing. These are characteristics which the Bible says only belong to God, and here they are used Speaking of Jesus, the Bible says God alone is creator. God alone is without beginning or end. God alone is the same today, yesterday, or yesterday, today, and forever. And the writer is saying, look, the Bible actually says that those same things are true about Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is God. If Jesus is God, then he's superior to the angels. If Jesus is God, then he created the angels, and the angels serve and worship him. So how foolish would it be to be obsessed with and preoccupied with angels? How foolish would it be to let angels eclipse your view of Jesus? But let me say this to us. That same logic, that same reason applies to us and in our lives and the things that we allow to eclipse our view of Jesus. If this is who Jesus is, radiant and glorious, if this is what Jesus has done, for you and for me, if this is what it means for you, life everlasting, forgiveness, that you're justified, that you have a hope which goes beyond this life that's glorious, then let me ask you this, how ridiculous is it that you let little things in your life become so big that you lose sight of that, 
that you lose sight of that big picture. How ridiculous is it that you don't live your life in light of this every single day? And yet we do allow that to happen. We do allow things to get in between and to eclipse our view of the gospel and our view of Jesus. And what we need to constantly come back to, the writer's telling us, is we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, who he is and what he's done so that we can get the right perspective on everything. And we can put things back in their proper place and into their proper orbit. And we'll finish with this final one, and that's this. That Jesus has finished his work and sat down. So angels, whenever we see them, it says they are ministering spirits. Whenever you see angels in the Bible, they're serving God, they're, they're worshiping God, but the one thing they never do is they never rest. Jesus, on the other hand, his work that he came to do is finished. And we see that Jesus rests. See, angels are ministering spirits. They're not governing spirits. But Jesus, he is sovereign. He reigns. And so he sits. See, when it comes to royalty, I mean, picture every picture you can think of, of royalty in the, in the throne rooms of royalty. You'll notice that everyone is standing in the presence of royalty. No one rests or relaxes except for the sovereign. The sovereign sits. And what that means for us is this. All that Jesus came to do for us and for our redemption, he did it. It's finished. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. In fact, there's nothing that ever could be added to it. It's complete. And what you and I need to do is to embrace it, to receive it. He accomplished it. Our part is to trust in it and what he, to trust in him and to what he did for you, to cling to it, to rely on it, to commit yourself to him. And here's what this means for you. Because Jesus rests, therefore you can rest too. Because Jesus said, it is finished, it means that he accomplished everything that was needed for your salvation. And then he sat down and rested. And because he rests, you too can rest. You can have rest in your soul. Because you know that in Christ, God looks upon you and he is satisfied. Because Jesus experienced the restlessness of being separated from the Father because Jesus experienced the restlessness of bearing your sin and judgment that you deserved. Because of that, you can rest knowing that you are forgiven and justified and accepted by God because of what he did for you. I want to encourage you today to embrace that. I want to encourage you today to take hold of that gift of God's grace to you. Whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the 500th time, I want to encourage you today to receive and to embrace what Jesus has done for you. And in turn, honor him, worship him as the great and loving God that he is. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus and let nothing else eclipse it. Amen? Lord, we thank you that you are a great God, that you are a great Father. Lord, thank you that you are the one who has accomplished our salvation. And Lord, this morning, I pray for any of us here today who who haven't yet truly embraced that haven't yet truly found our identity in you, haven't yet truly rested in our souls, Lord, I pray that we would find that rest that comes from knowing you and understanding that you have rested from your work and therefore we can rest in you. Lord, thank you for who you are. May we be those who don't let the things of our lives eclipse our view of the gospel, our view of the greatness of God. Lord, may we truly have our eyes fixated upon you And may that change the way that we live in every area. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. 
For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.